0: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between the words relapse and recur. Another quick and dirty tip about the difference between kneeled and knelt, and a meaty middle about the word methinks. Methinks you like it! Nobody wants a disease to recur, and nobody who has had a disease wants a relapse. Both cases are usually bad. But let's think about how these two words differ people relapse, and diseases recur. Recur comes from Latin that means to run back again. So, when something recurs, it happens again. A disease recurs. David worried that his cancer would recur. Leela's recurring back injuries make it hard for her to work. Relapse also comes from Latin, this time a word that means to slip or slide back. When you relapse, you slip back to a previous state. A person relapses. Sarah's family did all they could to keep her from having a relapse. Horatio's doctor attributed his asthma relapse to air pollution. Also, relapse can be both a noun and a verb, but recur is only a verb. If you want to use recur as a noun, you need to use recurrence. Here are some examples. First, we'll do relapse. The last two examples were relapse as a noun, and here's one more. Lauren worries a lot about having a relapse. And now, here's how you'd use it as a verb. After mom relapsed, we needed to hire in-home help. Next, here's recur. It's a verb. After mom's cancer recurred, we needed to hire in-home help. And although recur often refers to diseases or conditions, you can also use it more broadly. You'll notice that nature themes recur in her writing. And if you want to use it as a noun, use recurrence. Nature themes are a recurrence in her writing— Garner's Modern English Usage says that saying a disease relapses is an error. So remember that people relapse and diseases recur. Next, Joshua asked, Is there really no difference between kneeled and knelt? I want to say that knelt is more British, but I can't find anything to back that up. Are there really just two words with the same definition that you can use interchangeably, depending on which one you think looks or sounds nicer? Well, yes, it appears the two words are interchangeable. A small number of verbs are currently making the transition from irregular verb to regular verb and have two coexisting past tense forms. Sometimes the distinction is British versus American because the British held on to the irregular form more strongly than we Americans did. The verb dream is one example, Dreamt is considered more British, and dreamed is considered more American. Irregular verbs tend to become regular over time. For example, chide, meaning something similar to to scold, is a verb whose past tense shifted to the regular form relatively recently. The past tense used to be chid, but now we're more likely to say chided. You'll see that in a Google Ngram chart that I'll put on the transcript of this segment at QuickAndDirtyTips.com for people who want to see it. Sometimes the distinction between two past tense forms is a matter of where you live—London or New York—but sometimes the two forms exist simply because a word is transitioning, which seems to be the case with Neil. A Google Ngram search shows that NELT is still more common in both British and American English. But eventually, everyone will probably forget about the irregular form knelt, and the past tense of kneel will simply become kneeled, because that's the most common direction of language change—to the regular form. Until then, you can use whichever one sounds better to you. Have you ever wondered what's up with the weird word methinks? Why does it use an object for a subject, me-thinks? And why does it have an S-like third-person verb, thinks, even though it seems to be in the first person? The answers are weirder than you may think, but to find those answers, we'll need to take a little dive into Old English, the form of English that was spoken between about 500 and 1100 A.D. Old English had two different but related verbs, thanken, meaning to think, and thinkan, meaning to seem or appear. In Middle English, these two verbs merged together in form, so they were both pronounced thinkin, even though both the seem and think meanings remained distinct. But the one that meant seem could be used in a way that strikes modern English speakers as not just foreign, but ungrammatical. It could appear with an object in place of the subject, specifically a dative object. But we'll get to that in a second. First, we need to learn what the dative case is. Modern English has just one object case, as in me, or him, or her. Squiggly likes her, but Old English had two separate object cases—the accusative, which was mostly used for direct objects, and the dative, which was mostly used for indirect objects. In a sentence like, She gave me the book, the book is the direct object. It's the thing being given. Me is the indirect object, because I'm the one receiving the thing that's being given. Note that we can also say she gave the book to me, with the indirect object me following the preposition to. So in some constructions, me and to me are equivalent. In Old English, using me to mean to me was more common, even in constructions where we'd need the to today. For example, the me in woe is me was originally a dative. It really means woe is to me. Our modern object pronouns actually come from the dative case. The accusative forms disappeared centuries ago, and the datives simply took their place. And the think verb that meant seem took objects in the dative case. That is, you could say, it thinks me, or it thinketh me, to mean, it seems to me. This is called a dative construction. The me acts a bit like a subject, but the grammatical subject is still it. But the it is a dummy subject. It doesn't really refer to anything. So it was often omitted, just as we often say, seems to me, without the it. And when the it was omitted, the dative object sometimes moved up to take its place. Thus, instead of it thinketh me. Speakers of Old and Middle English would sometimes just say, me thinketh, and voila, you have a verb that appears to have an object in place of a subject. People said this often enough that eventually it fused into one word, me thinketh, or methinks. So when Queen Gertrude in Shakespeare's Hamlet says, The lady doth protest too much, methinks, she's not saying, I think the lady doth protest too much she's really saying seems to me the lady doth protest too much. In practice, though, there's not a lot of difference between I think and seems to me. They both mean basically the same thing. And eventually English speakers stopped using think to mean seem, aside from this one weird word. So we stopped thinking of it as a way to say it seems to me, and started thinking of it as a funny old timey way to say I think. Aside from methinks, English doesn't really have dative constructions anymore, but many other languages still do. In German, for example, if you want to tell someone to turn up the thermostat, you don't say Ich bin kalt—literally, I am cold—that would mean you're emotionally cold. Instead, you say mir ist kalt, which literally means to me is cold. As with methinks, the dummy subject is dropped. The Spanish verb gustar works much the same way. Mi gusta pizza means I like pizza, but it more literally translates to pizza is pleasing to me. And in French, if you want to say that you miss your family, you say ma famille me manque, which sounds like my family misses me, but literally means my family is missing to me. Methinks may have fossilized into one word, but from Old English through Shakespeare's time, you could still use other pronouns besides me with think. That is, you could also say him thinks, or us thinks, or any other dative pronoun. Of course, it's hard to say how things seem to someone else, but still, us thinks it might be fun to bring it back. That segment was written by Jonathan Owen, an editor and linguist who blogs at errantpedantry.com. That's A-R-R-A-N-T-P-E-D-A-N-T-R-Y dot I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl, and this podcast is produced by sound engineer extraordinaire Nathan Sems, with editorial support from Joe Muscolino. You can find thousands of other articles and the other Quick and Dirty Tips podcasters at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening.